Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, today with episode 702 of the Survival Podcast. Today is... Wednesday, or actually Thursday, July 14th, 2011, and uh, we had a cool show today for you. Uh, I want you to listen to today's intro segment, even if you normally don't, if you usually skip it. There's some very important things today. First of all, I want to tell you about our guest and some things that I didn't know when I did the interview. This interview was actually conducted a couple days ago. Number one, you're going to hear me ask her if she is the Chef Maribel that was on uh, Hell's Kitchen. When I looked her up the name in the Internet Movie Database, that's who I found, and I thought that's who I was dealing with 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 Chef Maribel from FoodDiva.com. Turned out she's a different person, and she's a much freaking cooler person. Uh, as we get into this interview today, unlike when we had Keith Snow on, you're not going to hear a lot of recipes. You're going to hear a lot about technique, and you're going to hear a lot about what Chef Maribel is doing to improve the lives of women and children throughout the world by teaching them how to cook for themselves and how to provide their own food. You're going to find out that she's a hunter, and she is... Uh, got a really cool new project coming out um, that's kind of an anti-PETA project. Uh, Alyssa Milano released this picture of herself nude with her arms covering the certain areas, and it says, I'm a vegan. Well, Chef Maribel is, has a, um, uh, a picture that will be released today through the Survival Podcast later this afternoon uh, that is uh, similar, uh, but she's wrapped in a bear rug, and it says, I am an omnivore. And I think there's going to be a donation to use that picture or something like that, and uh, it's kind of a counter statement. And I, I like that. I think that's cool. Uh, she's a little bit outspoken and sometimes maybe even a little bit outrageous, but I think as you listen to her talk today, you'll go, Jack says that. Jack says that. It was really kind of cool interviewing her. So I want you to um, approach this interview and understand you're going to be hearing from someone that's a little bit different than anybody you've heard for on the show before, uh, but with some real important work being done uh, to help people and to put skills back into the hands of people. And I think that is so important. And that's such a big thing that we do here at the Survival Podcast. Next up today, this is really, really important, folks. Um, we have this thing going on. If you haven't heard the show yet where I talked about it, you've probably heard about it online. There is a woman in Oak Park, Michigan, who has a garden in her front yard. It is a very beautiful garden. It has five uh, raised bed garden boxes. They're done very, very nicely, and she's growing organic vegetables, and the city wants them gone. She has refused to remove them because there's nothing that for specifically forbids that. Uh, the code enforcement is, is taking a very uh, uh, one-sided approach to interpreting the code, and she's not complying, and they want to throw her in jail for 93 days for having a vegetable garden in her front yard. Uh, now, it's not outlawing vegetable garden. She can have one in her backyard. They don't want in the front yard uh, because they are uh, saying that, that one particular word in, in the code, and the word is suitable, that, that what will be vegetation that is suitable in the front yard uh, if it's not hardscaped. And um, this this dolt, this, this, this complete freaking ass clown named Ken Rolkowski, uh, and if I pronounce his name wrong, I don't really care because he's Ken freaking ass clown to me. Uh, says that suitable means common, and you don't see any other vegetable garden, so it's not common. Well, if the ass clown actually looked up the word suitable in the the dictionary, he would uh, he would find that it does not include the word common at all. It, it does it just doesn't. 
Uh, so he's wrong, and what they're doing is wrong, and I want to do something about it. So we've had some listeners get some phone numbers of various departments at uh, the city of Oak Park, Michigan, and we were going to have everybody call in on Friday and voice your displeasure with these people. Not send emails, because emails are easy to delete, emails are easy to ignore, emails are easy to filter, phone calls have to be dealt with. So I want people to do this. So we were planning this for tomorrow. Uh, we can't do it, and we can't do it because the city of Oak Park, Michigan, who has time to screw with this lady... Listen to this, folks. You're gonna, the irony here is obscene. They have time to screw with this lady is another one of our cities that is on the verge of freaking bankruptcy, apparently. So much so that they have to close city operations on Friday. So if we call them on Friday, there won't be anybody there to take our call because they can't freaking staff their city on Friday, but they have time to screw with this lady who planted a beautiful vegetable garden in her front yard. So. Operation Phone Smackdown is moved till Monday. Monday we are going to call these people. We are going to, and we're going to be polite and we're going to be respectful. More details will come tomorrow and Monday we will launch Phone Smackdown on these people. I want you to get, even your friends that aren't preppers, anybody that's a decent American should be outraged by this and willing to participate. I want no less than 5,000 calls made on Monday. And those of you that are a little bit, have some comments about people being a little bit timid about making phone calls, these ass clowns are nothing special. They get up and they put their pants on, uh, their shoes on, and their clothes on the same way you do every day. They are public officials. This is a public matter, and we need to voice our, uh, our vo displeasure. And it doesn't matter that we don't live in Oak Park, Michigan. It doesn't matter one bit. What goes on in one city can happen in other cities, and it's time for the voice of America to be heard. This is wrong. I never do anything like this, so you know when I ask you to help me with it, it's a big deal. Uh, next up, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor so I can get Chef Maribel on the line and uh, telling us all this cool stuff. Sponsor of the day, number one, BackyardFoodProduction.com. That's Marjorie down there south of Austin. She has returned as a survival podcast sponsor. Uh, she went away for a while due to, to some restructuring and some budget issues that she had to, uh, to kind of relaunch and come back a new way. Um, and I let her right to the front of the line to come back because I believe in what she does so much. She's one of my favorite people, and if you want to know how to turn your backyard into a food production machine, you need to get the DVD, Food Production Systems for a Backyard or Small Farm. Get that DVD. It used to be under 30 bucks, and now it's over 50 bucks, and now I think it's fairly priced. And I told her in the very beginning that she wasn't charging enough because the information on the DVD was so valuable. Um, I'll tell you what, this is definitely something you want to make part of your resource and knowledge database. So consider getting her DVD today. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Hey, I talk all the time about having a means of self-defense in your home. But if you are not trained on how to use that means of self-defense, um, I'll tell you what, it's not going to be uh, as easy as Hollywood has made you believe or whatever the images in your mind have made you believe if you ever need to rely on it. It is important that you get really good quality uh, training if you are going to be in possession of a weapon that's capable of lethal use for the defense of your home, your property, and your family. I don't know a better place to get that training than Fortress Defense Consultants with Frank Sharp Jr. So check them out today. And if you've been putting this off, folks, listen to me. If you've been putting off getting firearms training and you have loaded firearms in your home and you're going to use that for defense and you've never had firearms training, professional training, don't put it off anymore. Get on the horn, talk to them, and if you can't travel to him, remember, if you can put together a small group in your area, they will come set up at a range near you or if you have suitable property on your property and they will bring the training to you. It can't be any easier than that. Uh, getting a few guys together that want to learn how to defend themselves better can't be that hard. Make some phone calls, send some emails, put a group together, get Frank out there with you today. 
Uh, next up today, remember, connect with me, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and on the forum. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You support the show at 20 cents an episode. Longer intro than normal, but lots of cool stuff going on. And I'll tell you what, folks, before I bring Chef Maribel on, one more time, on Monday, we are going to let our voices be heard. We are going to do something about what's going on with this lady. I don't know that it'll change things. But it's sure going to make the people up there think. I'm going to do the work and figure out which departments. Because somebody got me like a list of every department there. We don't need to call the people that, that have nothing to do with this. We're going to find five or six departments, five or six phone numbers. I'll put the list out. Let's make these people know that America's paying attention to what they're doing. Please, let's do that. It's important or I wouldn't ask you to do it. All right, folks, as I said during the introduction segment, we have a really cool guest today, Chef Maribel, uh, known for not being adverse to using controversial tactics in her messaging approach. Gee, who else do we know like that? Uh, she's also known as the Food Diva, the creator of a popular online cooking school, which, which released, and I love this, the cutting edge of child play. Uh, at the Royal Flair in uh, Toronto, November 2010. And this innovative film is specifically designed to engage kids ages six and up to learn the art of knife wielding. How cool is that? Uh, she's a, a pro provocative picture. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm just reading her intro, her bio here. A provocative picture of Chef Maribel wrapped in a cling wrap holding a variety of her sponsor's knives quickly brought global attention to the film. When you see the picture, folks, you'll know why. Chef Maribel, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, hello. How are you? Uh, I'm 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 great, man. I'm I'm happy to have you here. I want people to know a little bit more about you. I was I was doing some research on you. Whenever I get a, a sponsor or a, a, an interview request, I always go and I do a little bit of checking and see you know the background of the person. You were actually on TV. You were on uh, that thing with Gordon Ramsay, uh, Hell's Kitchen. No, that's a different Maribel, but thank you. I feel so proud. Oh, I can tell you. Okay. That's what you get for believing the Internet Movie Database. I, that, there, there was a Chef Maribel, yeah. There was a Chef Maribel that, on, on uh, Hell's Kitchen, but that was not me. I've been on a number of other TV shows. Does that count? Oh, absolutely. I, the only reason I was asking that at all is I just want to know if, if Gordon Ramsay's really that nuts all the time or if it's a stage presence, but... Uh, Can you tell folks maybe just a little bit more about kind of your background, how you got into cooking, and, and, and how you got to where you're at today? Yeah. Um, well, I've, I've wanted to be a chef since I was five. I used to watch cooking shows instead of cartoons, and I've always loved food. Um, my background is I was born in South America, and I grew up um, uh, in, Cam in Cambridge, Ontario, Canada. And, uh, you know, for an immigrant family, it's, it's a bit of a rough go to start all over. And so my parents cooked from scratch, and I came from very humble beginnings, and we didn't have TV. We didn't have, certainly, Internet at the time. I mean, that was a long, long time ago. Um, toys were scarce, and, uh, you know, it was cheap entertainment to to plot me on the high chair and watch my mom cook, and it was, like, the best show ever because, you know, you love your mom, and you're looking the spoon, and it's just, oh, it's just fantastic. So I learned to love food very quickly. I quickly related food to good times and, you know, good memories. And, and my mom is, thankfully, a very good cook. And But un unfortunately, she didn't, she didn't like to cook. And she was smart enough to, as I grew a little older, to woo me into the kitchen, and, uh, and I would be next to her doing whatever it was that she was doing. So I learned how to actually cook at a fairly young age. I was exposed to, to kitchen skills very, very young. And that's something that I would highly rec recommend all parents do is, you know, I know they're more of a nuisance 
at first, but don't shoot them out. Because if you wait until they're 16, guess what? They're more interested in, in dating and in college and driving and fashion. You've missed the boat. So my mom did it right. Kudos to her. And uh, I became a chef in my – it was actually a – I started at – I was looking for a job at 18. But as you can imagine, you know, 100-pound string bean girl – walking into some of the highest-end kitchens, they just didn't take me seriously. So I fell into waitressing um, because it was uh, a case where somebody, a, a kitchen position was going to come up, but they needed a waitress now. So if you come and waitress now, then we'll give you the kitchen position when, when, you, you know, when, when that person leaves. They were going on, I don't know, some leave of some sort. So I was in. I'm like, yay, I'm here. And then at 18 years of age, I was making you know, $200 in tips a day, and that's really tough to turn down when minimum wage at that time was 3.15 an hour. So <laughs> I got used to the money, I got used to the lifestyle, and then, you know, life goes on. I got married, I put the husband through university, we bought a house we couldn't afford, <laughs> we did all kinds of stuff, and then I eventually, in my late 20s, my calling just was knocking so hard on the door, and um, I decided to change careers. So I went from the top of one career to the bottom of another, and I started. And I loved it. I went to Stratford Chef School, and I had a total of about 24 years of hospitality experience combined, but I've been chefing for the last 12 years. And I started fooddiva.com in 2003, and originally it was a boutique cooking school. I started teaching classes out of my home, and within a year I was invited to guest appear on several TV shows. So no, I didn't meet Gordon Ramsay. I, I met some other... Uh, very, very interesting people. Anna Olson was one of my favorite, and I can tell you honestly, she is just as nice, nice on camera as she is off camera, or vice versa, just as nice off camera as she is on camera. She's great. Um, but as exciting as doing TV work was, I grew somewhat disillusioned with TV. As as you know, it's designed to entertain and to sell, and not to really teach. And unlike you, I don't want to ask permission for everything I do. I set out to do my own thing. And I created a webisode series on my own website. So it became, uh, within a couple of years, an online cooking school. And it, I did it as a cost-effective and convenient way to learn how to cook. Because as, as much fun as I was having teaching people in my boutique culinary school, I wanted to teach the world how to cook. And this was, you know, the Internet was kind of new for me, and I thought this is the wave of the future. So to date, I've made about 75 cooking videos. And these videos are not recipe-based, they're food science-based. So you understand the whys and the hows of what you're doing. Because frankly, if all you're doing is following a recipe, that doesn't teach you anything. That just makes you obedient. You know what everybody's thinking right now? Uh, honest to God, people are thinking right now, wow, Jack actually does know what he's talking about when he talks about cooking. Because I've been telling people on this show, when I occasionally do some cooking episodes, and we do a lot of like storing of our preps and harvesting from the garden. So if you're going to do all that stuff, you need to know how to cook it. And I've always said focus on the technique, oh, not yeah. the recipe. And I almost don't like recipes because they become like this crutch unless you understand why you're building it, like you're saying, because... You know, if there's certain things, you know certain combinations to go together. Like, we just did one on herb cooking, and, you know, pork and apples traditionally go together. If you know that, you can go a, a thousand different directions with that without following anybody's recipe. Or, yeah. you know, fundamentals like um, like Thai cooking, where, you know, you have one of the each of the of the, of the tastes in every dish, the sweet, salty, uh, bitter, uh, sour, and, and spicy. And, and exactly. if you, if you can do whatever you want with that, right? 
interestingly enough, when you mentioned taste buds, the sweet, sour, salty, spicy, actually spicy is, is, is uh, determined by our, our pain receptors in our mouth, not so much our taste buds. So theoretically, if you can handle a lot of spice, you can handle a lot of pain, but don't test that theory. I don't know if it's true. <laughs> I don't know. But interestingly enough, like if you imagine thousands and thousands of years ago, before formal um, classroom environments were, were, were designed, Basically, what what those four taste buds are designed to do is not just to enjoy the art of eating. It's it's actually if you cover all four bases, you've in a 24-hour period from a natural food source, you've covered your basic nutrition. So now we know vitamin A comes from this, and it does this, and it and why, how, and who, and when, and how much. Now we understand that, but we need to learn that because we're so um, dependent on prepackaged instant fast food stuff now. So let me make sure I understand what you're saying there because that's that's something new that's been dropped on me and it's back to the kind of what I call the infinite intelligence of the universe. What you're actually saying is that we have these four primary tastes. Bitter, salt, sweet, sour, and spicy. We have basic five components because if you cover all five of those from the natural food sources, so no sour is not going to come from sour candies and salt is not going to come from potato chips. I mean, yep. like from natural food sources, you've covered your basic nutrition. It's that done. That sounds better than the food pyramid or the new, I don't know if you saw down here in the States, now we have a new pl- a food plate. Uh, we oh, paid yeah. $9 million for somebody to design a circle graphic. You uh, know what's funny yeah. is that I teach kids culinary camp and kids understand that concept. Instead of teaching them a whole whack of stuff, teaching those five basic components and every day their homework was you have to have something of each category for dinner from a natural source and tell me about it the next day. That's really awesome. And you do you, you have a lot of messaging out there for kids. And let's talk about one of the things, and I say one of the things that really makes you different from everybody out there in your space right now, and this is kind of your obsession with the knife. And um, <laughs> I think it's a good thing, by the way. But here's, here's what I thought was uh, interesting, and I never really thought about it. I have good kitchen knives, and, and uh, I've always seen that as a very important part of, of, of my kitchen. But being the survival podcast, at least once a week, I get an email from some guy that wants to know the perfect survival knife for, for bushcrafting or for, for throwing on his back and living off the woods for six months or whatever. Not once has somebody asked me about kitchen cutlery. But it's, yeah. it's really an important thing. And the, the question you kind of wanted me to ask you is what would happen today if every child, uh, six and older, was trained how to use the most, uh, the most seven common kitchen knives? What would happen? I mean, people think, oh, you don't want to give knives to kids. And you're saying, give them knives and teach them how to use them. What would that do? Can you imagine if every child from ages six and up was suddenly trained how to use a knife just like a chef? Well, there, the impact would be absolutely incredible. Um, you know, to give you a little bit more background information on, on what my concept is, is, you know, I like, I have bold marketing. I have frank discussions. It's no lies. And by the way, I don't mind looking good doing it. I am a girl. I like makeup, perfume, stilettos, lip gloss, and sexy hair. And I tell girls that being cute is totally fine, but get competent. Uh, you know, I can rule on the dance floor, in the bedroom, in the kitchen, in the field, and in the boardroom, too. So, yes, it is possible for you to be able to have it all, but you have to educate yourself to do it. So you got to get off your butt and get crack- cracking. You know, in 2010, I hired a, a savvy C- a CEO to help me take my business to the next level, and we raised eyebrows by producing this documentary, The Cutting Edge of Child's Play. And it's a documentary-style film tackling tough food issues. And the first one was released at the, the Royal Agriculture Fair in November last year and along with my knife sponsor, Wishtoff. 
and it was it was it's the biggest agricultural fair in North America. And initially, even they were nervous of the subject of teaching children how to use, use knives because it's a bold thing to say. And I had the bold marketing to match. But then in the end, they loved it. <laughs> you know, I, I talk frankly to help people make better life, have a better life now, and to become more self-sufficient. I like empowering people to make good life decisions and remaining independent. You know, I'm, I'm a reasonable girl. I'm an optimist. I'm not a pessimist. I'm not a fatalist. But I do believe in being smart with commodities and resources. You know, Foodiva.com uh, Corporation, you know, is also very civic-minded. We like to help and give back, and we have a few programs underway that I want to talk about later. But, you know, learning to cook is healthier and has a better self-fulfillment. And cooking and gardening develops a real connection to food beyond the physical. It's emotional. It's even spiritual. So between the field to table, there's a prep period in between. That usually involves knives. So my, my company is focused on solutions. We're moving forward. The past is done. And other, other corporations, they can do all the finger pointing and arguing that they want. It's a waste of time. I say don't wait for others. Do it yourself. Um, you know, I can do things from scratch. And I don't always want to, and I don't necessarily even need to all the time. But if I ever have to, and good times are in bad, I will be okay, and that's a great feeling. I feel, you know, similar to John Kennedy's famous words, uh, and you might recall this, you know, ask not what your country is doing for you, but what are you doing for your country? So to me, the translation of that is get off the couch and go for it. No more trash, let's get this right, get to work, and join me on multiple levels. So, um, you know, Food Diva has several programs of an educational format to help men, women, and children from around the world. And, um, uh, you know, the the cutting edge of child's play, like we have some documentaries that uh, I took my, my, doc, my um, oh, I'm, I'm losing a word here. I'm, I'm taking my, my production company, that's it, <laughs> such a role here my production company, and we started producing documentaries. And this particular video, The Cutting Edge of Child's Play, it was um, inspired actually in part by Angelina Jolie. You may recall a couple years ago, she got lambasted in the media about how she was uh, teaching her, her child how to use a knife, Maddox. And uh, she has mentioned that she had learned from her mother how to use knives. And actually, my team has talked to her manager, and we're still waiting for a call back. We're still hopeful. <laughs> but I wanted to put a child in, in the hands of every uh, – I've wanted to put a knife in the hands of every child, and I want every child to learn how to handle a knife. Um, you know, I'm from Waterloo, which is a really big think tank for high-end NASA-type solutions uh, and for world peace. You know, even Stephen Hawkins was here. But I'm actually promoting a very simple solution that we can all do every day to impact our lives and have the power to change what we eat. And well, we I can tell you, you're not going to get any resistance from this audience because the average person <laughs> listens to this show by the time their kid's six years old is teaching them how to shoot a gun. Yeah, um, exactly. In a very positive way, in a very similar way. And I think there's a very similar resistance to it. Oh, but the, these things can be destructive. But every time you sit down and eat a meal, every time in your life, unless it's uh, even chicken, I mean, it's been cut up before it's been thrown on the grill usually, somebody cut it. Somebody well, yeah. cut it and they didn't cut it with an invisible, um, you know, uh, the, the Band-Aid or something. They cut it with a freaking knife. That's what it's what cut stuff with. Between the, you know, like we tell kids, frankly, you know, uh, like I've been asked, why are teaching children how, how to cook? You know, and I say because it's ludicrous to tell kids to make food but not give them the tools to do so. And I think kids should know, period. In fact, it's the very first thing as a chef apprentice on my first day on the job learning, a new, uh, you know, a new trade. 
If we don't have a down pack within a week, we get kicked out of the industry forever. It's a non-negotiable life skill. It's you, you either learn to wield a knife or you're too slow, you're unsafe, you're unreliable and unproductive to stay employed at any half-decent place that I can think of. But if you don't need knife skills at a restaurant, what does that tell you? <laughs> it's all pre-made boxes and, and mixes and sauces, and it's not made from scratch. Absolutely, so, and there is a right way to use a knife. And I have to thank you absolutely. personally. I've been having this debate with my wife forever because husbands are never right. And when she goes <laughs> to cut food up, especially like peppers and tomatoes and stuff, she tries to shove the knife through the food instead of letting the knife actually move forward as it, as it comes through the food. And I was looking at one of your videos yesterday. You were on a, a TV station in an interview, and you were demonstrating how to cut with a knife that way. And she, she was in the other office, and I called her over and said, you got to look at this. And she goes, well, that is how you do it. She would never listen to me, but she listened to you. But... It, it, it's not as simple, like when you, because talk about how, like, when you see a chef on TV, it looks like he's chopping something up. He's not really chopping it. He's actually slicing it. You know, this idea came from the fact that when I was teaching kids culinary camps, every day they used knives. And believe me, spend a week with me, it will change your life opinion about food. And so at, at the end of every day, I would always ask the kids, so, um, you know, what did you enjoy? And I was always expecting to hear, oh, I loved the chocolate, or I loved baking the pizza, I loved eating, I loved getting my hands dirty. You know what I heard 9.4% of the time? I heard, you know what, I really, really appreciated and enjoyed learning how to use knife. And I went, really? Like, that blew me away. And I went, why? Why, why, why was that so interesting for you? And they said, because my mom and dad won't let me. Sure. Sure, I think there's something kind of primal there. Uh, there's certain. I don't. Uh, you know, I did. I did a video recently where I was showing people how to make uh, South African biltong, and I was cutting the meat with this, you know, carbon bladed mora knife. And I'm like, I enjoy cutting meat. And I, I said, I said on the video, you might think that's weird, but I actually think that most people, if they learn to do it properly, will enjoy cutting things. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it sounds a little weird, but but, but that's who we are. We're, we're yeah, predators. it's true. Um, the biggest complaint I hear, Jack, seriously, is, you know, from thousands of people that I've come in contact with, is the biggest problem about cooking is not so much the cooking. The cooking in itself doesn't take very long, because in North America, we actually uh, use a lot of fast cooking methods. But it's the prep work. It's the prep work that takes forever. So if you can learn how to use uh, a set of knives properly, just like a chef, using the same technique, You'll be slower at first, absolutely, but within a couple weeks, believe me, you will be a lean, mean cutting machine, and you will fly through the prep, and it is no longer a chore. It is, is a pleasure. Like anything else, you need the right tools, and you need to use those tools properly. And, and you need practice and experience. Now, absolutely. We, we, we've obviously drawn out one place that you're different than the average person on the Food Network. We want to take little kids and teach them how to use knives, which I think is wonderful. But another place that I see a big difference, especially coming from uh, a female in the industry, is you are of the belief that if you really want to understand where your food cr- comes from, sooner or later you need to go out there and get it yourself, and I'm talking in the form of hunting and gathering. Yes, yes. Why do you feel that way? Well, one of the things that uh, the other theater uh, release documentary that we're hoping to do um, this year is called Senora in the Wild. And Senora in the Wild, I'm the Senora. Uh, my background is, is South American, so it's a little bit of a, you know, a um, reference to me. But taking someone who has, and I have to tell you, my, my husband is, is a hunter. So I've been around wild game for 20 years. And... Um, 
and I wasn't always a chef for the last 20 years. I've only been for the last 12. So before I even became uh, a trained cook, I had to learn how to make use of this fantastic meat because, I mean, he's going through the efforts of going to get it. I had to learn how to make it. And I didn't do so well in the beginning because I was I was not trained, for one, and I didn't really know what I was doing, and I was doing a bunch of things wrong. And, and when you have a freezer full of meat and you hate it, what's the point of that? You know, it's disrespectful on multiple levels. So I thought the least I can do is if, if you know, my concept is, is if you're going to kill it, please let, let us eat it. You know, that's respectful to me. Um, let, you know, let us learn to do it right. If you're going to do something, do it right or don't bother. That's my motto. So I learned how to cook game, and we're actually going to be filming a whole slew of um, game cooking videos uh, this year. So that, you know, not only am I hoping to teach you how to get out there and get it yourself, well, what do you do with it once you have it? You know, there's, there's, that's only half the equation. So uh, the concept behind the uh, Senora in the wild is, is multiple fold. Um, you know, it, it's the, the film itself is going to be a re- reality-based documentary-style film that will follow some fabulously girly girls, you know, actually they're beauty queens, and um, they are going to become sustenance hunters for the first time, and I promise it will be inspiring to watch. Um, we hope to release it within the year, and then you'll be able to see it on the online school um, at, at fooddiva.com. And so being able to, um, you know, uh, follow these ladies who are from all walks of life. Um, they're sophisticated and they're, they're girly girls and they're not, you know, country bumpkins. They, they are, they are of, uh, educated backgrounds going back to, you know, the old ways to, to get some sustenance hunting. And it is, um, it's going to be very, very interesting to watch. Um, you know, part of the discussion today, I feel, is about, you know, Canadian heritage, or Amer- North American heritage and its relation to the appropriate and respectful and responsible use of hunting and knives for the purposes of learning about wild game and cooking. You know, and so this year's film is about the concept that women should be, be comfortable entertaining that thought to use a rifle or a crossbow to fill their freezer if they so choose. Because most women wouldn't know where to turn if they decided they wanted to for whatever reason. They don't have a lot of information out there. So I am coming to the full circle of from food to field to table. Um, what I want FoodDiva.com to become is basically a resource for people who really want to become self-sufficient. And on that topic, I have a quote here from you. I'd like you maybe expand on a little bit for people. And it okay. says, until you have hunted, you cannot know the imperatives of the predator. Hunting strips away the social veneers. It compels you to accept failure without excuse and take responsibility for life and death decisions. It demands physical and mental discipline to test your deepest ethical convictions. I think it's a smart move for women to step forward and arm themselves as a means of making sure families are well fed, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yes, wholeheartedly. Um, anybody can buy a packaged meat at the grocery store. Anybody can buy leather shoes or a leather, you know, article of, of clothing or furniture, and it's so easy to remove yourself. A lot of people just, they don't even think when they, when they go to the store or make a purchase, they're so far removed, they think it's, it's, a, it's a product, just like anything else. But there's a lot more to it. And so when you go out there and get it yourself, 
I think you really become much more sensitive and appreciative and respectful of the environment and what what uh, and the, and the food that you're eating. Whether you're you're planting fruits and vegetables and and um, harvesting those, or you're harvesting your own meat. Because 100 years ago, I mean, if you think about it, um, 100 years ago, people did just fine with all the other without all the modern com- commodities. But how did they do it? And if anything happens, you know, we don't know if there's going to be a natural disaster or if there's going to be an economic turndown or a social upheaval of some sort, we might have to go back to basics. And it would be really nice to have access to information on how to do that. Absolutely. And, I mean, you're actually not just concerned with teaching people how to cook. You're concerned with trying to help better feed the world. And one of the things that you guys were telling me before we had this interview was that specifically if we would give women better access to land and technology and other agricultural resources, we could actually reduce the number of hungry people in in the world without sending, you know, without you know putting some kid on TV and making us feel guilty and spending twenty bucks a month. Actually, give them the ability to feed themselves. We could cut the hungry population in the world by 150 million hungry people, and that's according to the United Nations Food Agency. How, how does that work? Well, there was an article in the newspaper, and it was, um, I'm trying to think of when it was, but it was uh, just in March, and it was in, in um, a, an article that caught our eye, and it mentions that female farmers could reduce hunter, uh, uh, hunger, for me, female farmers could reduce hunger. And so it talked about how if, uh, if you know, you got to remember, too, that in certain places, women are very much discriminated against. They don't have access to a lot of things that men have access to. And if the gender equality was was equalized a little bit and they had access to education and they had access to agricultural development and food security, they would be able to, to be much more productive members of society and they would be, you know, they would have a huge impact. One of the things that... Uh, we are very much interested in doing, like we have so many programs on the go and I don't, almost don't know where to start, but uh, just touching on this, um, you know, this, this concept of, of putting women back to work and putting, you know, having women have more control in, in, the, in the benefits of their household, especially abroad in lands where they just don't have the opportunities that we do. I mean, in North America, we have so many opportunities to have things take care of us that we often forget about the basics. I mean, we're, we're so focused on teaching our children, you know, how to use, how to, you know, do all these extracurricular things, but we've forgotten to teach them the basics, such as learning how to cook. Um, it's interesting to me how, you know, uh, like I said, fooddiva.com is very civic-minded, and one of the things that we wanted to do is put women back to work um, outside North America. So we have a, a licensing licensee opportunity outside North America that's kind of coming down the pipes. And it's a program to put women back to work. And, and if you think of it, it's based on the similar concept of, let's say, Avon or Mary Kate. And it's based on my original kitchen lessons model. So they can teach lo- cooking lessons out of their home. They will have a website presence and a tutorial curriculum for learning, just like the high school students um, for our, we have a, a school tutorial program where basically we're being, we're going to be a, a virtual instructor via the internet and every high school is a future goals. And we've partnered up with Canada's number one technical college, uh, Conestoga College to help, help us provide with, um, a self-testing component to the interactive videos. So even issuing a 
certificate of completion at the discretion of the teacher. And that helps studying and retaining and reviewing information, but it also eventually helps with job placement or job creation for that motivated entrepreneur. So using that same base, we've extended it to licensing opportunities outside North America where, you know, going through that, that tutorial curriculum, they educate themselves from home and they have access to business tools to run their own small company from home. Because, you know, some women can't leave their home for various reasons, a big family, uh, perhaps culture or safety concerns. So being able to work from home would be a great help to bring in modest income that would no doubt greatly improve their circumstances. Absolutely, and I think in a lot of those places, what we consider a very modest income is a life-changing income. Uh, and I think it's really easy for people to get myopic and not, and you know, you hear somebody say, well, you know, women uh, are, are disadvantaged in society. And you look around in North America, like you say, and you go, where? Because, you know, there's, you can do the glass ceiling argument and all, but the reality is that there's tremendous opportunity in throughout the United States, Canada, and much of the developed world. But the whole world ain't like that. And there's places where women can't show their face. I mean, mm-hmm. literally cannot show their face in public. Uh, and, and all different types of levels in between. So I love what you're doing there. I want to focus in a little bit now, though, on the cooking itself, because folks always like to hear ideas for preparing their foods and stuff like that. And one of the things, like we started off talking about, was you've said don't focus on the recipe, focus on the techniques. Kind of another area I'd like you to expand on for people is, and I've tried to explain this before, but you can probably do a better job of it. <laughs> Sometimes people go to a restaurant and they eat a certain dish. And they go home, and instead of focusing on the techniques around that dish and the overall theme of that dish when they try to recreate it, they try to make it exactly the same way. And they're trying to do it with a, an electric range and commercial, you know, uh, you know, consumer-grade equipment, and they don't understand that somebody showed up at that restaurant at 4 o'clock in the morning and started preparing the sauce at 4 a.m. so that the, 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 the sous chef could use it at 4 p.m. when he started to put the dish together, and that there was maybe 15 people that touched that. With, but if we just let go of trying to emulate exactly what's done in these high-end restaurants and focus on the techniques and, and focusing on more about being a gourmet cook versus a professional chef, the person at home is going to have better results. Mm-hmm, definitely. Um, but you have to remember, too, that when you're cooking at home, you're, you're cooking for an average of anywhere from 1 to 6, maybe 1 to 8, if you really have a big family under your roof. In a restaurant, we're usually, pardon me, in a restaurant, we're usually, you know, multiply that by 10 or, or even 100. I mean, I've worked in restaurants where we've fed 700 people a night. And I've worked in other restaurants where it's just a 18-seater, and we, you know, on a busy night, we've filled it twice. Um, so we're just cooking on on mass. We're cooking in bulk. We're cooking in in it's it's a factory in there, you know, where um, you need the dishwasher and you need the different components of the the you know the different the brigade teams where you've got you know the saucier, the entremetier, the garmelinier, the you know all that kind of stuff. But in a home environment, um, you're right. In some ways, they, they're putting too much stress on themselves to try and duplicate a gourmet meal. Remember, too, that a gourmet meal, like if you're going to pay top dollar for a gourmet meal, there, there has to be multiple, you know, for every plate that you receive in a beautiful five-star hotel, you know that about 14 people touch that plate. You just don't have that kind of stuff at home, that kind of help at home. So simplest is bad. It is best. And a lot of people... If they're so focused on 
the foofiness, sure. <laughs> the fanciness, I like that term. the prestige that they forget about the basics, such as old technique and timing. <laughs> and that's really, really big. So I tell people, make learn how to, like, uh, even if it's a boiled egg, learn how to make one egg perfect. Then learn how to make two eggs perfect. Then learn how to make three eggs perfect. And that's how you build. Absolutely. So kind of on that concept of simplicity, let's try something fun here. I did this with Keith Snow when I had him on. I'll do it with you now. Different stuff, though. As uh, is, is preppers and homesteaders, we have a lot of stuff that all of us have. Or if we don't have it yet, we hope to have it someday, like let's say rabbits. So I'll give you a few ingredients. You can add anything you want to it, but tell me what you would do with it if I put these in front of you and said make something. So let's start out with every gardener out there grows tomatoes and peppers. And I said, you got to use them, don't care if it's a side dish, don't care what it is, and a rabbit. And I said, do something with that, add anything to you, want, you want to with it. Give me some ideas for what you would do with that. Okay, well, rabbit is composed of, of multiple, if you think about how the anatomy of an animal works, a four-legged animal works, particularly a rabbit, those hind legs are strong. And, you know, when you and I go to the gym and we pump iron and we're trying to look buff and get the six-pack and all that kind of stuff going, um, ultimately, what we're doing is we're hardening our muscles. So for every muscle that gets used a lot, that muscle is automatically tough. So from an eating perspective, it's tough stuff. If you've ever hugged a bodybuilder versus a couch potato, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So from a, a meat perspective, a meat cooking perspective, um, when it comes to a, a smaller animal that has multiple body parts and each body part is used in such a fashion where some parts of the animal are just going to be tough eaten and some parts are going to be actually quite quite soft and, and, and succulent and beautiful, sometimes you have to cut the pieces of that animal uh, separately and treat them differently. So if I may share a little bit of food science with you, may I do that? Absolutely, yeah, go okay. ahead, great. <laughs> a little bit of butchery 101, so you're never afraid to go into a, a butchery again. Um, if you think of the, and, and this is the majority of, of cases of animals, I can't think of one offhand where this isn't the case, but legs. Legs usually initiate movement. Legs carry the weight of the body. They often carry the weight of whatever the body is carrying as well. So leg meat is extremely tough stuff. So it's what's called third-grade pieces of meat. So it's just super, super, super tough. The lower back of most four-legged animals, think of, for example, a cow. Um, it doesn't hold up a head. It doesn't initiate movement. It basically drags behind the animal, and it just follows whatever, you know, whatever the, the, the body is doing. It just follows along, kind of hangs around. So those muscles are hardly used at all. Um, those that piece of meat or that area is um, very very tender, very succulent, very well marbled, and they're well marbled because it's fatty, and it's fatty because it's hardly used, and it's hardly used because the muscles just aren't used in in that format, and so it makes for really succulent eating. And in fact, if you ever go to a butchery store, all the expensive cuts of meat are from the lower back of an animal, usually of a four-legged animal. And if you think of, of, for example, the upper back and the uh, sometimes the belly or the abdomen area. Those uh, parts of an animal, they tend to do a little bit of work. They don't work as hard as the legs, but they're certainly not as lazy as the lower back. So those parts of an animal are somewhat tough, but not too tough. So now that you know where on an animal the type of meat, the density of the type of meat, how do you treat these pieces of meat? Because this is where a lot of people screw up totally. 
you know, they'll, and, and particularly with game meat. I mean, it's just, they just take it to them to, uh, they, they just mess it up completely. So if I can meet, if I can share with your listeners, anything that is super, super tough, you need to treat it. It, there needs to be three components. There has to be low heat for a very long time in a very wet environment. Okay? So low heat, wet environment for a long, long time. Now, low heat is the part where people screw up the most. Um, a raging boil is not low heat. If you think of a hot tub <laughs> environment, <laughs> if, you okay. know what I'm saying? Yeah, I if, do. If you think of a hot tub environment, um, the difference between boiling and, you know, subtle little bubbles trickling through the, through the top is only about 20 degrees. But if you're a hot tub and you were in it with 20 degrees too hot, Jack, can you relax? No. <laughs> no. I'm not getting in. me? I'm not getting in. in. <laughs> so, exactly. So, for really tough meat to break down all that sinew, it has to be in a lower heat environment. And by and I don't care what the temperature says in the oven. I don't care if it's 350. I don't care if it's 275. If you see a raging boil, it's too hot. Plain and simple. Look for Fair the activity enough. in the liquid. That's what you're looking for. Um, and then the opposite is true for really beautiful, tender, succulent, divine pieces of meat, known as the primary pieces. Um, that gets built in the opposite way. It's quick heat. In a, hot, in a high heat environment, uh, for a very quick cooking time, for a short period of time. So, oh, in a dry environment, pardon me. So it's quick, dry, and short. Um, and think grilling, you know, think pan searing, oven, oven roasting, those kind of things, where you're not waiting around all day for this piece of meat to be done. It's pretty quick. Whereas the other stuff, it can take sometimes even, like the bigger pieces of meat, Sometimes it'll take a day or two. It just depends. And then the stuff in between, where it's not really, really, really tough, but it's not the most tender cut. This is the stuff that you need to either marinate or tenderize or, in some cases, both. That's when you do it. Okay, but what do I do with my rabbit and my tomatoes and my peppers? (laughs) Okay, your rabbit and tomatoes and your peppers. What I would do is I would cut up the rabbit and I um, I would stew the legs and I would grill the breast and probably the, the the back and the and the rest of the animal. I could probably grill it, but the parts of the of the arms I would probably just marinate those really well before I grill it. So that's what I would do. Very cool. And I mean, and and I'm glad you did that and brought brought that up because I think we have a tendency to take something like a rabbit and we look at it and it's it's about the size of a, of a chicken. So we we don't even think about parceling it up. But no fool in their right mind would take a side of beef. And throw it all in one giant oven at a single temperature, cook it a single way. Because you've got ribeye in there, you've got New York strip in there, you've got chuck roast in there, you've got top round, you've got bottom rounded, and it's all different. And I think that when we look at smaller game animals and smaller livestock animals, we tend to lose sight of that. I mean, one of the things my, my old business partner, Neil Franklin, who's like just like an obsessive home, you know, really good home cook who's talked to a lot of folks like yourself and learned all this stuff, said is, you know, the biggest mistake people make at Thanksgiving is they cook a turkey as a giant single turkey. And yeah. the breast meat and, and the dark meat are so different from each other that it really doesn't make any sense for them to be in the oven for the same period of time as a single unit. And, you know, most people would never even think about that. No, most people assume that if an animal is small enough to fit into a pot, you automatically cook it all at once. (laughs) Which doesn't really make a lot of sense. 
No, um, no. What, when you understand the anatomy of an animal, it makes much more sense to cut up the tougher parts and treat them differently. What, what do you say to people? Because this is one of my big frustrations. I have people come over, and I'm going to make a really good cut of meat. You're going to grill, and you're going to grill hot and fast like, um, like a ribeye. And, you know, how do you like your steak? Medium, medium well, rare, medium rare, whatever. And when they say, well done, I'm just like, Ugh. and I, Oh, I know. I it's just, such a I, waste. and to me, it's a fear that they have because if I blindfolded that person and put a nice pink piece of meat in front of them on a fork and put a well done piece of meat on a fork in front of them and said, eat it, and they were blindfolded, I know which one they're going to pick. Absolutely. People have a fear of that pink meat. There's, there's no reason for that fear, is there? No, no. When the, when the piece of meat is whole, all the surface, all the bacteria needs air, just like you and I need air. So it sits on the surface. All the bad pathogens are on the surface. So when you sear the meat on high heat, you're doing two things. Uh, you are actually you're doing three things. You're 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 cauterizing the meat so that it holds the juices in. Two, you're giving it that beautiful, sexy magazine cover quality of, of the, you know, those pictures of that beautiful brown. Oh, that's, that's how you get it. It's high heat, not gentle heat. Gentle heat doesn't do that at all. And then the third thing you're doing is, is basic sanitation, which is a lot of people don't realize that. Yeah, I want to ask you about something now that you brought that up. Because uh, something came up on the show recently. I talked about this, and I was trying to explain to people the safety risk that this entails. It's something called meat glue which was one of the most despicable, disgusting things I've ever heard of in my life. Uh, and what it is is like this, this gelatinous crap made out of like bone meal and blood meal that makes a glue, and then they'll take meat and they glue it into like a giant roast, and then they'll slice it and, and sell it as a single cut of meat. Well, when they've done that, exactly what you just said happened can be prevented from happening and to me, this practice should be illegal or at least disclosed because I know, so I know to cook that piece of meat differently. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree with you there. I'm not very familiar. I've, I've recently heard of meat glue. I'm not very familiar with it, but when you see a really big, big sale at a grocery store, there's a reason for that sale. <laughs> what got and a lot of people don't realize why. Yeah, when I what got me on the report about that is they were they were putting these cuts in front of uh, professional meat cutters. You know, guys that yep. cut meat their whole life, and they were going, "Since you told me." I can kind of tell where this was done, but if you didn't tell me and I looked at this sitting there, I wouldn't have any idea. So I think that's one of the things that we need to banish from our society is glue and meat together. Um, let's go on some other uh, things that we uh, we have around the homestead, your thoughts on cooking them. Uh, one of the big things that we're a lot of homesteaders are getting into now is aquaponic systems where we're growing fish and vegetables in a single closed system. And the most popular fish to come out of there is the tilapia because they breed like rabbits uh, and they grow fast. And as long as you can keep them above about 60 degrees, they live. So And, and they happen to be delicious, too. Tilapia is delicious. They're absolutely great eating. And you can feed them duckweed, which you can grow in the same water system that they're in. So, I mean, they're like this perfect fish. Give us some ideas for, for cooking tilapia and some common mistakes people make when it comes to cooking fish, like cooking it too freaking long. <laughs> well, tilapia is what's called a soft flesh fish, which means that when you cook it, it falls apart. It's just absolutely stunning. The nice thing about fish in general, unless it's a firm flesh fish, so think of like, for example, tuna. It's a firm, or parts of tuna can be a firm flesh fish, like ahi tuna. Mm, um, it, 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 it takes very little time to cook it. If you have a high heat method, it takes short, like a very, basically it's about a minute per, per inch, inch a bit. 
So if you have a, you know, a, a four-ounce piece, it'll probably take four minutes to cook. It's that fast if you're at high heat. If you're at low heat, it might take two minutes to cook. The biggest thing is don't overcook it because you go from this beautiful succulent, succulent velvet to shoe leather, and it's done within a minute. It, it is that easy to overcook. Um, that's the biggest thing that people do wrong is, you know, whether they, they fry it, bake it, steam it, poach it, grill it, they just do it too long. So it doesn't matter what method you use because ultimately it's not going to take very long, but don't do it for too long. You got any kind of a marinade or uh, a, uh, something we would brush on that we were going to grill a tilapia flay that would maybe blow people away? There are three main components of a marinade. You need an acidic component, which is a high pH level. You need moisture, which is usually in the form of oil, and you need aromatics. Okay, so acid, moisture, and oil. Acid, moisture, and aromatics. So from an acidic perspective, anything high in pH will do. So this is where you have so much choice uh, because, thankfully, lots of things out there are very high in pH and very acidic. So think of fruit juice, citrus juice. Think of um, beer, wine, yay, beer and wine. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, spirits, um, uh, obviously vinegars. Anything that's high pH is gold because it's ultimately acid breaks down protein, which is the whole reason why you have acid in a marinade. That's the purpose of the marinade. Now, um, real quick on that, though, with fish, because, like, I did a dumb thing, and you'll laugh at me when you hear hear this, because okay. I, I make I – I make I cerv- No, you're going to laugh, because I make ceviche all the time. I, I spent two years in Panama, and we'd go out and catch Corvina on the boat and make it right on the boat. So I come up with this idea. I'm going to make tilapia with this ginger citrus uh, cilantro marinade. So yeah. I, I squeeze the lime juice into the jar, and I throw the, the ginger and the, the cilantro in there, and I close the jar up, and I let it sit for like a day so that all that flavor gets in that juice. And then I go and I dump it on the fish at like 4 o'clock in the afternoon, stick it back in the refrigerator, and then I go to cook the fish at like 6.30, and, and the fish is freaking cooked from the lime juice. So with yeah. the acid when you're using fish, there's a duration in it, and a certain amount of it, if you go too much or too long, the fish has done been cooked by, by, by the acid. Yeah, it's basically an acidifying effect. So, yeah, you've discovered the ceviche effect, whether on purpose or by accident, not sure. <laughs> but, yes, acid breaks down protein on a molecular level. So if you have a, a small piece of protein swimming in a pool of acid, yes, you've basically cured it. Yeah, that was That's the thing. It was terrible. Oh, no. <laughs> that but, you know what? I never did. Ironically, ironically enough, Jack, if you had eaten it uncooked, it would have been probably better. It probably would have, except it's it probably would have been better fish to do that with because it was farm tilapia. But because I mean, that's one of my favorite things: a little jalapeno, a little cilantro, a little lime juice, and 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 and, and you take a good fresh piece of saltwater fish, and boom, it's done. It's um, done. Absolutely. It might have even tasted good had I brushed that on there and cooked it immediately. But the way oh, I yeah. it would totally made fish mush. So go on back to what you were saying. I just wanted to point out to people when they're thinking about this acid thing: when you think about fish, there's a time and a quantity that you better take into account. Absolutely. So marinating 101, and whether it's for shrimp, fish, or, or, or red meat, or game even, um, marinating 101, you need those three components, as I mentioned before. You need a moisture, which, which is usually in the form of oil, an acid, which is anything high in pH, and an aromatic component. And even with just two ingredients, you can have all three components. So I'll give you an example. Olive oil and lemon juice. Olive oil has a distinctive flavor. There's your aromatic. Lemon juice has a distinctive flavor, as well as an acidic component. So there's your aromatic. So for you get two-for-one deals on both counts. So boom, with two simple ingredients, you can make a marinade. So you don't have to have 150 ingredients to make a kick-ass a marinade. So 
So that's nice to know. Absolutely. The other thing that separates, because right now a marinade sounds very, very much like a salad dressing, but there is one technical difference. Have you determined what that is? I, I really have not. Salt. Ah. There is no salt in a marinade. Not really? a good marinade. And I'll tell you why. Do you want to know why? Yeah, I do. Salt is a diuretic. Okay. So here's so here's what happens. If you put salt in your marinade and you're letting your your meat sit in there for hours, the acid is breaking down the protein, which allows moisture to come in. But the the diuretic component of the sodium content is squeezing that moisture back out again. You are undoing what you're trying to do in the first place. So you're saying that my 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 chicken marinade that uses soy sauce that people cry over because it's so good, even though it tastes good, it's not really a marinade. It's a marinade. It's a marinade. However, if you if you took out that soy sauce and only added it in the last five minutes of cooking, because I promise you, you will taste it and it will be just as good. Whatever you cooked would be would be that much more tender. I'm gonna try it. We're gonna, we're gonna mess with perfection here on your advice. <laughs> <laughs> so we, as I mentioned, as I mentioned before, we have a couple of different programs that. Um, we like I I love teaching people and I'm very much you know I'm not averse to taking on a controversial subject and taking an edgy picture to get attention to the problem but then you have to to back it up with um, some some sound knowledge you know I, I'm the type to want to learn how to do and my website is gearing up to release such information of self-reliant solutions and um, you know, if you think about how things were done before the century, we are spoiled to the point of being in big trouble if there's ever a major upheaval. So becoming self-reliant is, is something most women don't have a problem with learning. But as a North American culture, as I said before, women may not be as prepared in this, in this part of the world as those in other continents because we've just had more things available to take care of us. So being cute is fine, but now it's time to get competent. And more and more women actually want to be self-reliant. So what are some things that women, you know, believe it or not, I mean, I, when I started doing this show, I thought it would be a very male-dominated audience. And I would say it's 30 to 40% females. What are some mm -hmm. things that modern women out there can do to be more self-reliant for themselves? Well, learn to cook is number one. Learn to cook is absolutely number one. Learn to garden is certainly in, in connection with that. Um, if someone chooses to harvest their own meat, there is the opportunity for that as well. Um, one of the things that I find, too, is, uh, you, you know, to me, it all starts in the high chair. We have a very poor food culture in North America. And, um, you know, there's, there's two quotes from the Dalai Lama that I absolutely love. And one of them is, a loving atmosphere in your home is the foundation for your life, which is very, very true. And the second one is, approach love and cooking with reckless abandon. And I just love that quote. I think it's absolutely fantastic. So creating food culture, you know, eating is a, a sensory adventure. It involves our senses, our taste, our smell, our texture, appearance, and even sound. If you, if you look at how a child eats, once they start um, embracing solid food, once they're off the formula or the breast milk, they don't just put it in their mouth. They, they wear it. They smear it all over themselves. They smear it all over you. It's a very tactile thing. It's not just taste. It's It involves all the senses, and that's how they bond with food. If you don't let them get dirty, they're not going to they're not gonna fall in love with food. Like, if you think about it, you know, um, anyone who has a partner in life, if you never touch them, if you never hug them, if you never kiss them, you're not going to fall in love. So you have to you have to touch food, and so many people don't even want to touch food. 
and how are they ever going to, you know, feel a bond with something they never touch? It, it's impossible. It won't happen. Absolutely agreed there. Um, and, you know, I also want to kind of, we're getting kind of toward the end here to, to, you know, reiterate to folks, you do have an awesome website. Again, it's fooddiva.com, and you have all these different things coming out. But one of the things I've noticed that you definitely have coming out, kind of a release date set on, is you're going to be doing some sort of a new online cooking school launching in August. Is, is that correct? Yes, yes. We have a... Uh we our our website is being revamped as we speak, and we have uh, an interactive component to our videos that are being finished as we speak. And so, one of the interesting um, projects that we have to, on the go, which you know, before they were just on the website and you can you could watch them, but we've actually made them more interactive because we are we are launching a couple different programs. One of them is a school tutorial program where we're being a virtual instructor via the internet in every high school. Um, and we partnered up with, as I said, Canada's number one technical college, Conestoga College, to help us with the testing component. And that helps with, you know, the high schools are so strapped for instructor time, and it's a great uh, setting tool for kids. But what I'm most proud of is, um, in regards to, to that, is we have a specially designed life skills program based on the Robert Bateman School in, in Burlington, and we're using them as a test pilot. And it's designed to assist kids with mental and physical challenges because they need to be functional adults too. So addressing their special learning needs so that they can become constructive members of society. And eventually, this pilot program could be expanded to all of North America or even the world. And one one interesting component of all this as well is that Marvel Comics. I'm sure you've heard of them, Marvel Comics. Absolutely. You used to read them as a kid? Oh, yes. They are working with us as we speak to design a foodie superhero comic book that would dovetail nicely with these programs regarding food education. Well, very cool. It just seems like you've got so much going on out there, and you're really oh, trying to make a positive difference in the world. <laughs> well, I, I'm out to, you know, go big or go home, right? So um, I'm out to to change the world and, and, and help people as best as I can. We, we all have another program based on the uh, documentary, Senor in the Wild, and we're put, this, this fall, we're putting together a, a survivalist retreat called the Senor in the Wild program, based on the, of course, the second doc- documentary that we'll be filming this year. And it's learning to live from scratch, from field and table. And we're currently talking with the Manitoulin Island Tourism Board for a location in northern Canada. And it's about being open-minded, and, and, and that is so key. Like, for example, what would happen if the grocery stores were closed for a week? It's a different experience in the country as it is in urban space, and that's the information that would be part of my camp. So it would be a retreat. For example, it would be like a two-month residency where you're completely immersed. You're exploring the Wild Lifestyle Renewal Program where you're basically 100 years behind the time. So there's no Internet, no phones, no TV. And if you must have a cell phone, put it on vibrate mode and keep it in your room. So you're doing nothing but revitalizing yourself. If you think of the movie... Eat, Pray, and Love with Julia Roberts. Um, there was a concept in, it's a similar concept in the ashram India where, you know, you go and stay there and you're actually part of the staff. You cook, you clean, you do, you do everything. And, you know, there is some structure in the itinerary, but it's a, it's a private sanctuary retreat and everyone is treated the same, whether you're a rock star or the, or the grocery store clerk. And it's all based on a 100-mile diet concept with organic food and excellent food fare. And, yes, you get to learn to cook straight from me. 
Very, very, very cool. Um, let me uh, let me kind of give you an opportunity here at the end. If you could tell the average person out there hey, just one thing about how food, how, how understanding food and, and something as mundane as it seems in the mindset of the modern American um, cooking food may seem, how can that really change their level of independence? Because what I'm big on is independence from the systems, as I call it, because we don't know what's going to fail. And I'm very pleased to hear that you kind of, uh, you know, doing something for the survivalist niche, so to speak. Cause I think there's a lot there. But, you know, my show's like, yeah, we could have this total, complete, inevitable collapse, but we need to be living our lives in a way that's better for us today, even if nothing goes wrong. And the way you do that to me is through independence. So what can learning these skills really mean to the average person? Um, I know you asked for one reason, but I can give you ten. Number oh, one, <laughs> money. For the price of one fine dining meal, you can buy groceries for the week. And for the price of fast food, you can eat fine dining meals. Two, health. You can control the salt, sugar, and fats, and there's no preservatives. Three, it's a time saver. Going to a restaurant is not faster. You think of the travel, the parking, the ordering, the waiting, the eating, paying the bill, and driving home again. You know, if you've got time to order a pizza and sit and wait for it, you've got time to make something. So even drive through lines are getting ridiculous. Number four, pride. You possess a very valuable life skill, period. Five, sex appeal. It may, it's one of the most admired sexy traits in both men and women. Everyone loves a good cup. Let me let me reiterate the thing about that because I know that you know it's easy to see that a, a woman that can cook and feed a man a man way to a man's heart through his stomach and all that. But I'll tell you, women like men that can cook too. That's true, absolutely. In fact, um, my husband used to make me surf and turf meals, and uh, that helped a lot. Believe me, I was like, "Oof, this guy can do it all. He can fix my car, and he can make big cookies, and he can make you know beautiful meals." I mean, it was certainly uh, very appealing, and. You know, we've been together 20 years, so it worked, obviously. Um, another reason is you get to climb the social ladder. So you can take out uh, a date for dinner, and you may get a, a second date. But if you made your date dinner, you will get that second date. That is far more impressive than pulling out your wallet. Um, you can climb the professional ladder. You know, if you take your boss out for dinner, you might get that promotion. But if you make your boss a great dinner you will get that promotion because you have just displayed some of the very things of organization and diplomacy that he needs to in a leader. Uh, the other thing is it's a basic instinct. We do it every day, eating, writing, reading, math, eating. It's, it's basic. We, we need to learn it whether we want to or not. Um, I also believe that uh, it brings people together. You know, all great celebrations in life involve food. So be a participant, not just a spectator. Enjoy entertaining more. And I am a big proponent of learning how to cook actually does contribute to world peace. Uh, food is love. So be hospitable to all, even in little things, without reservation or expectation. So whether it's from your health, wealth, waistline, or social, it, learning how to cook affects everything. Awesome. And, sad, and sad, sadly, chefs now are treated like rock stars because we have a life skill that really we all should possess to a degree. You know, I want to make sure people understand that wasn't a setup question. I had no idea we were going to get such a kick-ass answer to that. So that that was just awesome. Um, I also wanted to kind of point out that when you mentioned something like world peace, that's not an overstatement. I want you to think about this, folks. If you travel somewhere in the world, anywhere, especially not the United States or Canada, if you go overseas into a small town, uh, generally speaking, when you get there, they're going to feed you, 
and they're going to be very proud of what they feed you. And it's a very big social bonding thing. Even when you go out to eat or something like that, there is some social bonding there. But when you go into someone's home and they take time to do something extra because a guest is coming and they feed you, it's a very bonding cross-cultural experience. So I believe there's definitely something there as well. Again, folks, the uh, website, fooddiva.com. And Chef Maribel, thanks for being with us today. What an awesome interview and what a different look at the, the concept of cooking and how it applies to our lives. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on your show. And in conclusion, I just want to say that I'm also launching an I Am an Omnivore campaign where it's, uh, I have my own little, uh, PETA, people expanding their attitude at fooddiva.com acronym. And, uh, it's going to be released very shortly on fooddiva.com. So that'll be, uh, able to be downloaded for for uh, screensavers and T-shirts and all kinds of great stuff. So uh, thank you so much for having me. We're gonna throw a little bit in there because you're, you're taking a shot at Peter there. I like that. People expanding their attitudes. I love it. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, we've always said here that PETA stands for People Eating Tasty Animals. Um, but it's, it's been fun. We've had a, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, great stuff from you today. I'll tell you this. Uh, is, is you have these new things, these new initiatives actually getting off the ground and launching and where people can participate in them. If you ever want to come back on the show again, you'll be welcome. Even if it's like a short segment you want to come back and do, uh, just get in touch with me and we'll be happy to have you back here. And folks, I really want you to take Take the time today to go by fooddiva.com, check out all the great things that Chef Maribel has uh, going on, hook up with her on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, all of that good stuff, sign up for her newsletter, check out the offering she has, and uh, you know, it's clear she's one of the good guys. She's looking not just to make a name for herself in the world of cooking, but to have a positive impact on as many people as possible, from kids to women to grown men and, and back down the ladder and, and everything in between. Uh, so with that, this has been Jack Spierko today along with Chef Maribel, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
düşer 